Hey, thank you for being here today. My name is Pastor Philip. I'm one of the pastors on staff at the Goodlettsville Church of the Nazarene. I'm not the senior pastor there. We're in the, we're in the search for a senior pastor. Our senior pastor decided to leave and go up north. We knew when he left and went up north, it was God who called him. Because no one voluntarily goes up north. In fact, uh, I, I was amazed today when I got up and I had this huge oak tree in my front yard. There's a lot of squirrels in that tree. My kids, uh, ranging from 3 to 10, like to often watch the squirrels working. As I was pulling out of the garage this morning, I looked in the front yard. There were about four of them gathered around this campfire throwing darts at a picture of a groundhog. I mean, I thought, go figure. It's just amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Welcome to Tennessee. Hey, uh, one of the things we're going to do, I, I want us to start today in John chapter 6. I'm going to be, be beginning at the end of that chapter. We're going to be kind of uh, working our way through three scenes in the Gospel of John. One of the things that I like about the Gospel of John is, is for me personally, if, if, I could, if I only had one Gospel... And my ministry and life and studies were to be confined to one gospel, it would be the gospel of John. Interesting things happen in the gospel of John that you don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one of the things that I like about it is, is, is the gospel of John speaks about a spiritual, a spiritual realm and kind of what's going on in the heart and mind of Jesus Christ that sometimes you don't see in the synoptic gospel. Now, one of the things that is interesting to me about that, if, if in fact we were to start at the end of the, of the Gospel of John, is the writer of that Gospel says, and Jesus Christ did many other things. And in fact, He did so many things that the world itself could not contain the book if all of them were written down. And so this writer has chosen specific things communicated in a specific way to a specific group of people. And so there's things that he leaves out that some of the other ones share. Now, I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 6 towards the end. But before I get there, uh, my wife and I have been married about uh, 16 years. In fact, it has been 16 years. I don't have to be specific on the date. She is with my kids today south of here in a, in a, in a warmer climate. So even if I did get it wrong, she wouldn't know, okay? But so my uh, wife and I have been married about 16 years, and when we go on a date now, we like to watch younger couples. And we like seeing how the younger couples respond to one another because you can almost tell by the way they look at each other how long they've been married. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, if they're both sitting on the same, the same seat, they're both sitting on the same side of the booth, if they're both kind of looking at each other goo-goo-eyed, if, they're, if uh, one says something, you know, the other one laughs or something like that. But if you've got somebody that's been married 40 years, okay, they're sitting there with their menu in their hand saying, where's the food? Okay. Because, because, the, because the longer they've been in the relationship with one another, they have, they have learned that marriage is not always a honeymoon. Seriously. There are, there, are, there are difficult times in marriage. There are times in marriage when both parties look at one another and wondered why they married one another. 
My dad told me my wife and I got married so we wouldn't ruin two other people's lives, okay? That's what... so, in, so in John chapter 6, one of the things we see there is very early on in the lives of the, of the, uh, of the followers of Jesus Christ, the disciples, they're kind of like in the honeymoon phase. And they're seeing all the wonderful and glorious things that he's done. The first miracle Jesus performs in John is, a, is at a wedding, turning water into wine. And, you, and you know, you've already heard that story. And then here in John chapter 6 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it is, an, it is an awesome story. And at the end of that story, the uh, people come to Jesus wanting to take him by force and make him king. But he will not allow it. He departs from there because he's not about being made king by force. And he moves on. And so, uh, and then, then following that, there's a storm on the lake and Jesus comes out on the lake, this wonderful miracle. Well, the following day, he tells the, the crowds that are following him this significant truth. He says, you came to me not because of the miracles. You came because of the food. You came because, in essence, what they thought it was to be a follower of Christ is just to be fed all the time. Please give us miracles. Please give us, give us something else. And then Jesus goes into this thing that he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who drinks of me will never be thirsty. And it says there at the, at the end of chapter 6, it's an interesting thing, In John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So we know, at least from John's version, there was more than twelve. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he knew who was going to betray him. Now, interesting thing. The first mention that we have of Judas comes right here in John. And what Jesus says of Judas is the thought process of Judas is similar to the thought process of Satan or the devil. Wow. I mean, no no word of Judas, nothing about Judas. And so if if we look from Scripture, here is some things that we find out about Satan. Number one, we find out that he is a deceiver. He always comes clothed as something other than he actually is, Because if he came in the room and said, hey, I'm the devil, I want you to come follow me and do what I want you to do, we would say, well, get out of here. But he comes subtly. He can't come as he is. He has to come as something that he's not. So he comes at the very entrance he's coming deceiving. Not only is he a deceiver, but he's also a liar. He's in politics. No, I'm kidding, okay? I'm kidding, okay? He is a liar. And so you know that what he says is going to be consistent with who he is, which is a liar. 
Not only is he a deceiver and a liar, but he's a murderer. He wants not only to take our physical life, but our spiritual life. And then finally, we find out that his ultimate weapon is death. Now, it's interesting. Because in this first scene, we find out, listen to this, we find out the thought process of Judas. Now, scene two, scene two. Scene two is a beautiful scene. It's the scene of the anointing of Jesus. It's in John chapter 12. In this scene, one of the things that I like about it is the fact of, of just how amazing it is what this lady did. Now, 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 let me give you perspective on what we're talking about in terms of the value of this perfume, okay? Now, now it, in the story, we are told that it is worth 300 days' wages, okay? So what I'm going to do is kind of do some math for you in modern-day terms, okay? If the average household income in, in the um, United States is $36,000, okay, and it may be a little more or less, if it's uh, uh, $36,000, and if you are a good Jew, you can only work six days a week. You won't work on the Sabbath. So we've got 313 working days. You take 365 minus 50. So you've got 313 uh, days, you, and you divide that out. That figures to about $115 a day. If that was worth 300 days' wages, the value of that perfume that is broken and dumped on the Messiah's head is $34,500. Now, let me tell you this. If that was at my house, it wouldn't be sitting on the coffee table. You understand what I'm saying? would not be sitting on the coffee table. It would be sitting in a back corner in the room uh, in, my, in my house. I would not even let my four kids know it existed. It's so very, very valuable. And so this woman openly, not dabbing a little bit on here and there, snaps the top of it off, breaks it off, dumps all of it on him. The aroma of what she did, she's done makes its way through the house. And this is the second scene of Judas. And Judas says this. This is in uh, chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this is what the narrator of the Gospel of John tells us. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the common purse and used to steal from it. Now, let's, interesting thing here. Let's go back now in a, in a slide to the qualities of the devil. Okay. Number one, he is a deceiver. Why did you take this money that could have been given to the poor and pour it on this lady? Did he care about the poor? No, but he has to make himself look like something that he's not. And so he in turn lies, and through his lies we all know uh, eventually he betrays Jesus. Now, scene number three. Scene number three is the final scene we're look at, looking at today, and this is the washing of the disciples' feet. Okay, I don't have time to go through all of this, but in uh, John chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Then it goes on, after he washes the disciples' feet, at the end of that chapter, 
in verse 21 through 27, let me tell you what Jesus said. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after receiving the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Now, let me pause a second and go back. Scene one, we find out the thought process of, of the Judas. Scene two, we find out the actions of Judas. In scene three, G- Judas is with all of the other disciples. And in, and in a last act of service and love to the disciples, Jesus dips this, this bread in the, uh, in the wine and He gives it to him. And in that, he's no longer the one thinking like Satan and acting like Satan. He now becomes the one who is filled with Satan. You understand what I'm saying? Now, this, this is what bothers me about this. And um, what, what bothers me is this. Okay. It is found in uh, James. If you can put the Scripture up from James. This, uh, I want to read you a Scripture from James. Listen to this. This is James chapter 1, verse 14 and 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my loved brother. Now, listen to this. If there's ever a poster child for this verse, it's Judas. But this is why it bothers me in this day and time. I was born and raised in the church. My dad was a pastor. Even before knowing what the church was, I went to church. I recall, my dad pastored in Clarksville at one time, that I actually came to church, I was about five years old, wanting to know why I could not bring my pillow and sleep at the front, you know. My dad said, because you don't do that in church. I was like, well, everybody else does during your service. So, so anyway, you know, I was born and raised in church. But see, and so, you know, we always had this perception of Judas like, well, he's this outside guy. We don't have to worry about him. He's so far out there. There's no way that we could ever be anything like him. But here's what's bothersome to me about these three passages. If you work your way back to the very first Scripture that we find out is that when Jesus told His disciples His ministry was going to go one direction, Judas says, I'm not willing to go there. And Judas' betrayal began with a simple parting of ways. Let me tell you why it bothers me. At uh, Good Naz over there, there's, there's a room in, in the back corner of the building. And when there's a lot of stuff going on and I'm really busy and my heart is heavy, I will go in that room and pray. I'll, say, I'll tell them, if somebody dies, you can, you, can, you can tell me after I get out, okay? You go in the room and pray. And sometimes I'm pacing around. And one day I was there and I was pacing around. I was 
praying for various needs in the church. I was making my way around. I was making my way. And I had this need and that need, and I was listing all these things and listing all of them. And then just right out of the blue, I felt like, felt like somebody saying, Really? Really, have we been together so long that you have to tell me how to do things? Have we been together so long that you have to pace around with a list of things for me to do? And here is what I want to communicate to you on this Tuesday of Holy Week. I don't think anybody in here is going to be filled with the, with the uh, devil himself. I don't think any of you are going to go through the deception and the actions of all that stuff with Judas. But every one of us has the potential of not following Him every day wholeheartedly. Of not allowing Him to do the leading and we do the following. And if I'm not careful when I come to Him sometimes, I want Him to be more like Santa than I want Him to be like God. In closing, let me tell you this. I'm just now finishing up a book written by Mother Teresa. One of the things she says in it, she's got, she's got this phrase that she continually uses, and in that phrase she follows it with, this, with, a, with, this, with another phrase. And the phrase she always uses is, I love Jesus not because of what He does for me, and then she'll follow that with something. Well, the two things that she said that stick out to me. She says, I love Jesus not because of what He does for me. One, because of who He is. And the second she says, I love Jesus not because of what He's done for me, but because of what He's taken from me. Because in the taking, you and I are closest to who He is and to what He wants to do in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, today, Your will be done. We thank You for what You do that we see and what You do that we don't see. And I pray that we would not be guilty of directing Your thoughts to do our will and our deeds, but may our heart be in tune with Your heart. So that at the end of our days, we will look back and see that what was accomplished was not our own plan, our own will, but your will and your plan in and through us. And we'll be careful to praise you for all that you do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.